Hello everyone, this is Sir's Movies, the official podcast of SirWaka.com. I'm your host, Sterling Woods. I'm joined by... Evan Todd McCoy, co-host from Canada. This week we're going to discuss what we've seen over the past week and follow that up with an in-depth review. This week's movie is Yorgos Lanthimosis, The Favorite. Uh, you can find more episodes on Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, and other podcast apps. And you, if you want to contact us, you can contact us at SirsMovies at gmail.com or join the Sirs Movies Facebook group. Follow us on Twitter at Sirs Movies. All right. Uh, what is new with you? Uh, how was your week? The week was all right. Uh, I was sick for the first part of it, so lots of time to watch movies. And uh, I ended up working one afternoon. I'm a substitute teacher, if you guys at home didn't know that. And it was actually a pretty good afternoon, so a nice segue back into work after the Christmas holidays. Um, how was your week? Uh, about the same. Unfortunately, we were both sick this past week. I caught, I don't know, I'm I'm usually pretty good when I get sick. I'll drink some orange juice and I'm okay. But for whatever reason, I, the past few days, I've had a little bug. So uh, my apologies if my throat sounds terrible. And But uh, I'm feeling a little better now. But yeah, I spent most of the week um, just sleeping and drinking orange juice and trying to feel better and blowing my nose and all that kind of stuff. You're welcome, listeners at home. <laughs> um, uh, but it's been an interesting week. Usually uh, every year at my church, we start off um, fasting. Uh, usually with the Daniel Fast this year for the first um, first full week starting uh, this past Sunday, we fasted from technology and food. So starting at 3 p.m., I couldn't use my phone, no TV, no, no going to the movies, no technology period, uh, within reason, and then no food. So I couldn't eat it in any meals, you know, just um, whatever you eat up to three o'clock, you cut off, you know, you can still drink water and whatnot, but no food. So uh, just that, on top of being sick, pretty much meant like a, a real boring uh, evenings the last few days. I actually went to the uh, bookstore, got a physical book, and was literally just like reading physical books you know i've been no. mostly a uh yeah mostly an audiobook <laughs> kind of guy so i've been like for the past i don't know 10 years every book i've read has been talked into my ear so it's nice you know which i guess is what it was all pretty much about just kind of detaching from uh you know the norms that i'm used to and um getting in touch with god and whatnot so what book did you but, read? yeah um Actually, it wasn't like a for fun book. Uh, I'm studying for my A plus test, so I got a study guide book, and I was uh, reading that. Yeah, we're like the polar opposite. I, I've actually, I don't know if I told you this before, but I've never listened to an audio book in my life, uh, ever. Ridiculous. I know, I know, I know. So many people <laughs> who do it. I, it took. I'm a late. I was late adopter for podcasts too. Actually, like. I remember before podcasts were like a big thing trying to make one and like that I had one for a little while that was about movies and music, but it was just like a lark and, and I didn't get into podcasts till like relatively recently either. And audiobooks are just a thing that a lot of people do that I, just escapes me. Uh, I just never have done it. I'm always like reading a, I, I do read eBooks, so I'll read books on my phone, but I generally have a hard copy of a book. Uh, no, I'll just like I said, I, I can I like to multitask and 
you can do other things while listening to a book and it just kind of your mind escapes from it. So that's why I just I can spend hours, you know, that I'm basically being efficient, you know, killing two birds with one stone. I can do a menial task with my hands that needs to get done while also, you know, being in some escape fairy world, you know, or whatever, because I've read pretty much every book I get my hands on. I love series. So that makes sense. I mean, that's how I that's how I usually do podcasts. Like I'll put them on while I'm doing other things. Right. Like, yeah, uh, I just for whatever reason, they're going to audiobooks. Although I'm I'm trying to read The Way of Kings, like we talked about, the Brendan Sanderson mm-hmm. book that you like so much. And Amazing. seriously, reading it though, reading it, every everything that's wrong with his like writing style and the technical stuff is what keeps what trips me up. But I'm starting to get into it and get over the things that bother me about the way he writes. Um, and I can imagine that listening to an audiobook of it, you'd never even worry about that in the first place. It would all just be pure story, right? And uh and I'm I'm getting I'm about 200 pages through it and and I'm it's starting to grab me and and that's a book you were like you got to read that so I am yeah that may be why I I guess kind of feel about books how I do because I couldn't care less about the writing style I know people say oh that guy's a terrible writer right um, but that that kind of stuff doesn't bother me because nine times out of ten I'm just listening to people tell it to me in my ear which is you know more you know I guess cinematic is a word I kind of use but it's easier for me to get into a book when I'm just kind of listening to it unfold rather than actually trying to dedicate the time to read it word by word so yeah you know I've heard people say that my brother I think has said similar things I think he sort of splits between reading books but he drives a lot so he can't really read a book with his hands while he's driving. So what got him into audiobooks was was driving. And he always says, like, you know, one of his favorite audiobooks is Game of Thrones. There's a particular guy who does it that he says is great because he does, like, voices and stuff, right? Um, so he always tells me about audiobooks that I should check out, too. Uh, you know, like, I'm, you know, it breaks my, my, my English literature heart, you know, because of a background in that, uh, mm-hmm. to hear people not care about writing style stuff but I, I get it you know it's not it's not that important necessarily yeah I, I just I couldn't I, I don't get it personally like I said I know people you know live and die behind the proper proses and whatnot and I understand it, I respect it but if, I, if you can tell a really interesting story terribly compared to a you know a less interesting story properly written or whatever I'm that's true a good story every time yeah and I, ideally you want a mix of both um, but if you can't have both, I think, I think I would agree with you that a good story beats good technicals every time. I'm a big fan of Stephen King and he isn't always the best writer, technically speaking. So All right, that's, that's a good transition from Sir's book clubs. <laughs> yeah. Stephen King. Coming soon. Indeed. Let's talk about movies. What, um, what have you seen this past week? I've seen a few things. Um, I have reviews coming out on, uh, Sirwaka.com for Vice and uh, for Escape Room that just came out last week. Uh, so I won't talk too much about them. I did like both of them with Vice. It was uh, a big surprise. I didn't think I would like it. I tend not to like biopics. I tend not to like um, didactic political movies that are like message movies. I tend I tend not to like them very much. Uh, but I, I really liked Vice and with Escape Room. It, you know, it's 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 a January release, so I thought it'd be kind of maybe a dump release, like something not very good that they're just throwing out there to test the waters. And it, it turned out to be better than expected. It was very entertaining. Um, doesn't always work, but you can read my review to see what I think about that. Um, yeah, I didn't have high hopes for Escape Room, but we, you know, we discussed that last week, whether that was going to be something we reviewed today, but right. we ended up on the favorite. I just... 
you know, so it's, I'm, I'm glad to see you like this. I actually want to go check it out, but something like that, I just, I look at it and it's kind of one of those things you look at a preview, you know, within the first 10 seconds of whether or not you're going to go see something. So yeah, it was pretty much a no for me. I, yeah. You know, I, like, I think it, I think it's a winner, but it's a soft winner. Like it's, it's not going to blow anybody's minds, but if you like escape rooms or you're kind of curious about them, I feel like it's going to, it's going to, you know, it has a good grasp of like what escape rooms are sort of all about. And it, it takes a lot of those elements to a place that's logical, but still really fantastical, like, you know, stuff that like would never happen in a real escape room, obviously, but the, the sort of fundamentals are there. So you don't feel like you're being sold a movie that's called escape room, but isn't really about escape rooms. It's very much about escape rooms. Um, did you see Vice? I did not. Okay. Uh, I, I recommend it if you like the big short I don't know if you saw that but if you like that oh, yeah, movie I saw that I thought it's pretty good yeah so Vice is in the same vein like if you like big short I, I imagine you'd probably like Vice um, I was leery going into it because I was like do I really need to see a movie where Christian Bale wears a fat suit and pretends to be one of the greatest monsters in living memory hmm. uh, no you know I don't really need to see that and I wasn't 100% sold on like the trailers made it almost seem like it was going to be even handed in some way, like, that it wasn't going to, like, totally indict the guy. But, spoiler, the movie indicts Chaney quite a bit. So that was good. I like that. Um, I saw a couple sci-fi indies. I saw a movie called Beyond White Space. It's about um, people in power armor fighting space dragons. Yeah. I have my attention. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's an indie movie, So the, the but it's made by VFX. Like, the company that made it or the people that directed it, they're all VFX people. Like, um, so the, the effects are pretty good. And it has a couple familiar faces in it. Nobody's super famous. And it's basically a retelling of, uh, of Moby Dick, but in space with space dragons instead of whales. So it's a, it was a pretty cool movie. I liked it quite a bit. Um, another one I, I saw was... I I've never read Moby Dick. You've never read, yeah, I haven't either, actually. That's, that's uh, one of the big literature classics that I've never read. Um, but you know, I think, right. do you feel like you've absorbed the gist oh, yeah, of I mean, it I though? I kind of get it. I've, yeah. I've, that's one of the things I've tried to read it and even tried to listen to it on audio, but, oh. but I guess that's one of my complaints that you're, you know, that you have just the writing. It's just, I can't, it's just, oh, yeah. I so, know what the general story is, but I feel like I've got to get two hours into it before I'm hooked by the story to care enough to um, you'll finish it out, but it's a product of a different time. Like yeah. it's, it's a hard to read. It's a hard read. I've tried uh, a couple times and just never couldn't maintain an interest. I'm reading war and peace right now by uh, Tolstoy, which is another, like that's a doorstopper of a novel and it's the same kind of thing. It's like, you really have to get used to how it's written before you can even enjoy it because it's written in a way that's so different from how most books are written now. Um, but yeah, I mean like, have you ever seen like, have you ever heard of a movie, uh, it's got Danny Glover in it, and I think it's called Age of Dragons, and it's, 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 that is the, like, I was watching Beyond White Space, and I was thinking the whole time, this isn't even the weirdest, like, take on Moby Dick that I've ever seen. There's this movie called Age of Dragons that is basically, Danny Glover plays Captain Ahab, and they ride around in these big wagons that they call land ships, and they're hunting dragons. And it's like a fantasy movie, and it's a retelling of Moby Dick, and that's like the weirdest version of Moby Dick that I've ever seen. Yeah, I just Googled that, and it came out in 2010, but somehow that completely escaped my grasp. Oh, man, it's like a D movie, that man. Zero bells for me. Yeah, like it, it's a D movie. Like if if Beyond White Space is a is a C movie, 
um, that movie is like a D or E movie. Like that. Like I can't believe Danny. They got Danny Glover for it. Uh, it's it's not good, <laughs> but it's like you know it's it was fun to watch uh, on a, on a Saturday night with a bunch of friends because like, that's we just watch it because it looked bad. It was on Netflix at the time. Um, another one I checked out was called Elizabeth Harvest. That's another sci-fi indie movie you guys should check out um, if you get a chance. It's the best of the movies that I've talked about so far. Uh, it's kind of a retelling of Bluebeard. I don't know what's up with this week and watching sci-fi movies that are like retellings of literary classics, but or f- fairy tales. I guess, you know, Bluebeard is not really a fairy tale. It's kind of a folk tale, but same difference. And it was really good. It has Kieran Hines, Abby Lee, Carla Gugino. Check out the trailer. See if you're into it. Um, that one you haven't seen, right? No, I have never even heard of it. That you might, you might need to, I know that you've, you've shifted away from your trailer rule recently. You might want to check that, the trailer out, see if it sells you. Uh, I can say that the trailer doesn't give the movie away really. It'll give you some hints about where it's going, but it's a pretty good trailer in terms of not giving the movie away. I feel like, uh, I've seen a couple trailers recently that like the one for, um, that Netflix movie that's coming out, uh, Velvet Chainsaw. It kind of gives mm-hmm. maybe too much of the movie away. So that's a, that's about everything I've seen, except for The Hate You Give. But I saw that, like, right after our last podcast. And that movie, you've seen, right? Yeah, the one, that was my number, I think, six movie of the year. Yeah, it was in your, yeah, I definitely remember it being in your top ten. I can't remember, I couldn't remember the number. Um, you know, I, I, it was, I liked it quite a bit. I found it really upsetting. Like, I was watching it, and it was, it was getting under my skin a lot. Um... And uh, the only thing I, I, I didn't like, and this is just a complaint I have, like a nitpick I have about like kind of messagey movies, is just that like, you know, it skews towards melodrama in some ways, and uh, that's kind of common for the for the genre that it's in, though. So it's not really a criticism. But do you know what I mean by that? Like, we're we're kind of there's a couple scenes that feel like they're they're there specifically to kind of relay the message of the movie, and they're not really organic. Yeah, I felt that like the the whole I don't know second half of it it really wasn't the movie I expected it to be I expected the kind of um what happens in the end I expected that to happen kind of halfway through and right. then the rest of the movie would be about the repercussions of that and that didn't really happen so I guess they kind of it, it was more of a um people story than I expected it to be and I guess they kind of just had to fill the gaps you know and that kind of thing I want to ask you what you thought about Common's performance in the movie. Um, I just, I think I talked about this during my review. I don't think of him as a particularly um, notable actor. I think he's mm-hmm. adequate. I think that's a good word I use for him. He, he fits exactly the role that he uh, applies for. You know, um, I remember him in uh, the John Wick movies. I think he really he fits that guy, but he doesn't stand out. You know, he just he he fits exactly the role that he signs up for. He does a great job, but I don't particularly you know think of him as a standout actor. But the fact that he used to be a rapper, so that's that's exceptional for him to have transitioned into you know not a movie star, but definitely uh, you know a, a solid actor. You know, you're not surprised to see Common in a movie anymore. Did you think he was good in, in this one? Like, is is because he's not in in it very much. But the, one of the reasons I bring this up is there's a key scene where he's talking to Star, um, in the in his dining room right after after mm-hmm. they've kind of had to go to his house because they're they're you know their their neighborhood's not safe anymore. So they they go there and they're hanging out and basically 
they're talking about what it's like to be a police officer and common plays a police officer in the movie and he's you know the whole scene is set up just so that she can mic drop him about like what it what basically the issue is and he's explaining to her you know this is what we deal with and then she points out the this, one of the like flaws in the reasoning that i just i had a hard time believing that a cop especially a black cop would not have thought of that already so it sort of felt like the movie kind of reaching past itself and hitting you over the head and it just made me realize because i i used to think of common as basically being pretty decent as an actor not super exciting like you like you were saying but you know adequate is a good word uh but that's the first time i think i saw a movie where i thought he was actually bad like that scene i thought he was he was outright bad i think actually that's where i disagree with you i think that's the one one of the you know few common scenes that actually worked and i think i think that specific scene was more about the writing than him as an actor but i think he did exactly what was required from that in that role i think the writing was actually exceptionally well done. I think it, it did a good job of, you know, um, giving both sides of the argument to that. And I think anyone who, you know, the the Blue Lives Matter type folks who watch that scene will completely understand his point of view. And just like people who feel, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter type people will understand her side of view. I think that was, it was written very fairly. I don't think they gave him short shrift. And I think it's understandable why a cop would feel how he felt. And, uh, honestly, I think I don't think it's unreasonable for him to feel how he felt as a cop. So I think that that delivery actually kind of worked. And I think it was, you know, um, I think it's a harsh truth. I think that may not be have something he wanted to say to her, but I think he knew it before that conversation ever started that, hey, yeah, if it's a young black man in a hoodie and sweats, I'll be more, you know, mistrusting of him than a white person. I think he knew that going in, but just getting there in the conversation is not necessarily somewhere he wanted to go because it's, you know, it's a, it's right. a hard truth for him to state to her. But I think I was saying, I don't think he was blindsided by that. It's just maybe not necessarily somewhere he wanted to go because it's a harsh truth of, you know, life here in America. Uh, like I, said, I, don't, I can't speak to Canadian life, but you know, it's just black is uh, more suspicious inherently, you know, and him as a cop being it's even a black cop. Is that something you know, I think the movie does, you know, give him fair um, shrift and um, having that opinion of, hey, yeah, I'm a cop. I, you know, I want to come home to my family. I do a good job. And to be honest, I'm going to be more mistrusting of a black person than a white, you know, an older white man. Yeah. I never, I never thought about it as something where he's like, he's like, you know, like that he is thinking about that. And then he just let, like, because like, your, your take on it is, has this extra layer of like, okay, yeah, of course he knows this, um, but you know he's not going to say it. She she gets to say it because you know in the scene she's kind of like explaining basically a position that um, she assumes he hasn't thought of, whether that's correct or not, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's fair, and I and I think you're right. I think I think the scene is even handed in terms of like its messaging. I just felt like Common kind of had a chance there as an actor to give a, a, a quite a bit more like in body language and expressiveness, and he was very. Fl- I thought he was very flat, and so uh, that that scene less less the writing and less the messaging in like in particular, um, but more just his performance felt like 
flat in a way that I wish yeah. it hadn't been. And, and I never thought of him as being like a bad actor, but I remember I, I was saying that about that scene after we watched it. My father-in-law was like, well, he's not a very good actor. Like, what did you expect kind of, right? And I was like, hmm, you know, I never, I never really thought of him that way, you know? Yeah, I can understand that. I can mm-hmm. see where a more, I don't know, experienced actor or somebody with a little bit more uh, on-screen personality would have brought more, you know, life to that performance. Right. And that's where I guess you know him being a rapper first and an actor second comes into play. Because I guess it's not necessarily expected of him, and I guess I don't know if he just doesn't have the range in him or you know it's just you know one of those things where the director wasn't asking more out of him but i understand where it it just his personality or whatever didn't show through he was just kind of there delivering the lines but you get it because it's common necessarily because of the actor well he was playing against type too like common usually plays like super cool characters like in john wick too where his like physical presence his appearance his smooth voice you know they all kind of play together to make like kind of a cool character right well, I didn't see him as not cool. I saw him as the cool Uncle Cop kind of guy. I, I saw so him I as, as straight lace, like 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 your average black cop just trying to make it. You know, I didn't I didn't see him as very like cool guy the way that Common mm. often is. You know, like that, that's all I mean. Like not yeah. uncool exactly, just not cool the way <laughs> the way that that Common usually usually pulls off pretty easily when he's in stuff like smoking aces or. Uh, or John Wick, uh, Chapter Two. Um, that may be just kind of a, um, ex- I guess, um, cultural. Not, I'll make that cultural, but yeah, an experience type of thing. Because I know, like in my kind of communities and people, I know the the guys that were kind of the cool guy who now have office jobs or whatever. The more uh, reserved, but you still, you know, that's the cool uncle, you know. So right. I mean, I can, I still see him as the cool guy, but not necessarily the John Wick. I'll pull a gun out and shoot you in the head, kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I get, I get that, and he does, he does come across as like a supportive, good uncle for sure. Uh, the kind of uncle you want to be if you're an uncle, you know, like, like yeah. there, right? Um, I just imagine like, like w- one of the things that surprised me is like for me, like Russell Hornsby kind of came out of nowhere uh, playing Star's dad. And I, like you know, if I picture like you know, you can't. I I I could picture like it's easy. It's cheating to be like imagine imagine Denzel Washington playing Common's role in this movie or something. But like just yeah. even Russell Hornsby doing it. Like uh, when we're talking about you know him bringing that something extra as an as an actor. Um, that that scene just stood out as a good example of 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 the things that like you know of, of Common's performance yeah. in particular and also just the way the messaging sometimes takes center stage in the movie and it's less about like the the sort of drama or the the storytelling and more about like the messaging and i think you're right in the back half it kind of skews more towards that than in the first half yeah and if you want to hear more i did do a, this was you know before the evan days i did discuss um <laughs> The Hate You Give, that was actually on my first official episode. So if you want to hear more, I know we've been going probably about 15 minutes on this. So yeah. It's a good movie. So, yeah, go back and listen to that. Um, so far as me, what I've been watching, I haven't actually watched any movies. I've just watched TV this week. Um, as I said, I've been watching mostly either the morning time or just kind of, you know, with the little moments that I have. So I haven't watched a whole lot, but um, caught some Netflix stuff when I had the opportunity. Uh, one of my wife's friends told me to check out Lemony Snickets. Um, she kind of spoke highly of it, so I wanted to check it out. Um, have you watched Lemony Snickets on Netflix? Uh, no, I've seen the movie, but not the new series. Well, new series. Uh, no, I didn't. That was I didn't even know they were books uh, until long after I saw the first movie. 
Yeah, I read the books when I was a kid, watched the movie, but I never got around to watching an actual TV show. And I watched the first two episodes, and I I mean, it's an enjoyable show. It's entertaining. It has um, some good humor, but it didn't really hook me to where I'll be coming back to watch, you know, probably finishing out the series. I just, it's kind of one of those things where you get it, you know, you watch the first two episodes and you kind of get what it's going to be, especially if you read the books before, you kind of know where the story's going to go. Right. You know, life's not great for the kids, so it's just more of that, but it's, it's you know, very uh, humorously written, it's got, um, so I, I, it's, it's a good show, uh, it's just, you know, it's not great in my, in my personal opinion. Um, oh, that's fair. Oh, yeah, I also watched uh, Tidying Up, uh, um, you familiar with the, the book, the Tidying Up book? No, is that a is that a Netflix show as well or? So tidying up started as a book, a uh, very popular book. Um, uh, it's Marie Kondo, I believe, a Kondo, uh, Japanese lady. Um, the book was kind of flying off shelves. It was one of those things where you know, I don't know if it was Oprah's book club or just one of those things where you know, people you know, people across America were just reading this little book about how you only keep stuff in your house that brings you joy. Anything right. that doesn't, you throw out, and, you know, that is, quote-unquote, tidying up. So, I guess Netflix, you know, as they do, anything interesting, anything that they can make a show about, they do. So, they <laughs> signed her, and here we are. There's a television show about it. I never actually read the book. I bought it because, you know, I was my house is cluttered at times, and, you know, you want to read about the newest craze of tidying up. So, I wanted to tidy up my house, but I never actually, actually got around to reading it. So uh, watching it visually was the next best thing for me. So I watched a few episodes um, and basically is what you think it is. She comes into very untidy houses. Um, She talks to people about uh, her process. And, you know, um, first, I believe they get all their clothes out of the closet. They throw it on the bed. Then they go through each piece of clothing one by one. And if it brings them joy, if there's something they want to hold on to, then they put it in one pile, and if it doesn't, they say thank you for you know being a part of my life, and they toss it in the donation pile, and do basically do the same with the kitchen and the the garage and whatnot. And at, at the end, you're left with much less stuff, but stuff that you actually appreciate, and it just kind of teaches you to appreciate what you have, and you think differently about all the stuff you have. You know, it's a nice you know feel good, um, you know you know our tv show bit just kind of you know makes you think about cleaning up your house and appreciating what you have and not being so materialistic but i enjoyed it for what it was did you end up throwing anything away and kind of cleaning up a little bit after seeing it it's, or it's, it's on the to-do list ah. so i'd have a, i'd <laughs> yeah. watch that and i, I that, that sounds interesting to me because i have a kind yeah. of like passing interest in minimalism um and trying to yeah. like declutter and stuff but I have, I'm like a nerd, like a like a massive nerd. So I have a lot of stuff that that brings me joy just to look at it, just that it's there, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I think that I would, I think I might be a bit of a pack rat, and I'm not, I'm yeah. not sure. I, I might be a bit of one though. My dad definitely was a pack rat, so maybe it's in the genes, well, maybe. Well, I just moved recently, so I right. got a 
rid of a bunch of stuff that I didn't necessarily need. So, and then at this point, it would really be about more being minimalistic and, you know, you get rid of stuff that you don't need, but you still have stuff that you don't really need. You just don't want to throw away. You know, I've got boxes of cables and whatnot. If I get my mother-in-law to stop giving us random stuff, like that would be a help with yeah. <laughs> keeping it. She's like always given us like, uh, like a pot or a, a pan or a, a, some fucking thing. So yeah. we have lots of clutter around from that. But I mean, I have lots of creative hobbies uh, and it's hard. Like, like I live in a, we live in like a three bedroom house, like a main floor uh, suite, I guess, in a house. And like, I thought like it's a huge upgrade in terms of storage space in the last place that we lived in, but it's still not enough. I mean, my wife's an artist yeah. and it, you know, so she has all her art stuff. I have all my art stuff and craft stuff. And it's just like, ah, you know, ugh, clutter, right? Yeah. Sorry. I'm so you kind of, you know, you watch it and you really just see how people have stuff that they don't, you know, it's just a book from 20 years ago that oh, you okay. really like that you just, you know, it has sentimental value, but it's just taking up space and you haven't opened it up in 20 years. It's just that the little motivation to actually throw it out, you know. How do so. you define joy then? Like, like how, or how would you define joy in terms of something bringing you joy? Because I would think of a book that I had sentimental attachment to as something that like I wouldn't want to throw away. Right. Mm -hmm. But what would you where's your where's your line with that? Well, with her, she actually kind of not more or less defined it with little, you know, a little shake, you know, just a little spark, <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever it is. So it's like, you know, if you have, you know, a pair of sweatpants that, you know, you're you feel comfy in that you wear, you know, twice a month, then, you know, that brings you joy. But if you have sweatpants that you like theoretically that, you, you know, you got for Christmas two years ago that you really like, but you never actually wear and they just kind of right. sit there. You know, that's the kind of thing. Hey, you might actually have to throw it out. So throw out the aspirational clothes too, like the the, the clothes that that you you bought three years ago because you thought you'd have a beach body. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, uh, you know the the high school swim captain T shirt that just sits in a drawer that you don't want to throw away because you were the high school swim captain oh, twenty yeah. years ago. But you know, were so you the high school swim stuff. captain twenty years ago? So I was not. I was not. <laughs> All right. Um, finally, the last thing I watched was you. Uh, I only watched oh. two episodes of it, but I've I've seen a lot of people talking about it. You know, on the Facebooks and whatnot, um, the Twitters. Um, I I knew absolutely nothing about it. Um, I just knew that it was um, dark. I just you know not from you know reading synopsis or anything. Just just the kind of way people talk about it. So it made me want to check it out. So I went to you from um, Netflix, turned it on. Started episode one and, you know, no spoilers, you know, this is like 10 minutes into the episode, you find out that it's uh, a guy who basically stalks, you know, this lady, um, well, this, you know, love interest to the movie and things kind of go from there. And it, it gives me kind of, um, you know, a romantic comedy mixed with Dexter kind of vibes. And so, you know, I'm interested. My, do my daughter's watching that uh, actually. She says that it's good. I I kind of watched the trailer on Netflix and I was like, is this another one of those things where like the guy is a stalker and the girl falls in love with him and he's like a total creep and and it's supposed to be romantic. Um, I um I'm not that far into it. I don't know how she's gonna feel. Well, okay. So the thing is, she doesn't know he's a stalker right now. He's a secret stalker. So she just thinks she's met a guy. You know, you see all the stalking stuff from his perspective, which actually is kind of interesting. It's not one of those, you know, 90s romantic comedies where the guy's a creep and she's like, oh, I, I like you anyway kind of thing. Right. It's just that, he, yeah, he's definitely a stalker stalker. 
And she has no idea. She just thinks she's met a nice guy. So, so you mentioned Dexter, which is interesting because I like Dexter uh, for about like five years, five seasons of it or so, and then it started to kind of go downhill. But, but it, so you say it's like Dexter? Is that like a? Is it because he's like a serial killer, or, or is he? Is there like voiceover that he does? It's kind of like Dexter, or? Well, the logo for you is the word you with a bunch of blood on it. So ah. take that for what you will. All right. Good answer. <laughs> All right. Um, I mean, that's pretty much it for what I've been watching. So if it's good with you, let's go ahead and get into the full review for this week's episode. Um, that is your ghost, Lanthimosis, the favorite. Dearest queen, you are mad. Giving me a palace. It is a monstrous extravagance, Mrs. Molly. We are at war. We won! Oh, it is not over. We must continue. Oh! Oh, I did not know that. The Queen is an extraordinary person. They were all staring, weren't they? I can tell even if I can't see, and I heard the word fat. Fat. And, and ugly. No one but me would dare, and I did not. She's been stalked by tragedy. Alright, that was from the trailer for Yorgos Lanthimosis, uh, newest film, The Favourite. Um, so before we actually get into the review, let me ask you, what do you think of Yorgos Lanthimos? He's a interesting director, to say the least. Yeah, he's one of a kind. There's nobody doing the kind of stuff that he's doing. I, I like him. I, I got into his stuff early. I saw Dogtooth... Um, which was the movie I think he... I don't know if it's his first film, but it's the one that attracted the most attention. Well, the, the first one of his that attracted a lot of attention. And I saw it, uh, I think, a year or two after it came out, and this would be before The Lobster. Um, so I saw that, and, and I quite liked it. It's not something I'd recommend to most people, though, <laughs> which I you could kind of say that about most of his movies. But, yeah, I've, I've been a fan ever since, so I watch everything he does. And my favorite, I think, so far is The Killing of a Sacred Deer, uh, where are you at with, with Yorgos? Yeah, so I've only seen two, uh, The Killing of a Sacred Deer and The Lobster. Right. But from that, you definitely get his um, point of view and his, his directing style. I've had Dogtooth downloaded for like, I don't know, two years because I know it's a good, interesting movie, but I've never just had the moment to sit down and, you know, we're going to watch Dogtooth right now <laughs> kind of thing. So, um, but um, I saw, like I said, The Killing of a Sacred Deer and The Lobster. The Lobster, I absolutely loved. That was probably one of my, I don't know, favorite, probably my top three movies of 2015. Uh, I really enjoyed that one. It's really weird and quirky, but it's really kind of my uh, my aesthetic. It really worked for me. Uh, Killing of the Sacred Deer, not so much. Uh, it's kind of the same vibes. You can te definitely tell it was you know, directed by the same guy, but that one just didn't work for me as well. Um, but he's, like I said, he's probably one of the, you know, I don't top five directors in my book because whatever he comes out with next, I'm definitely going to watch. So just because of his, his style. Um, all right. Well, so far as the favorite, how do you think that ranks? What do you think of the favorite? So it's a, it's a tricky one in some ways because he directed it, but he didn't write it. And I think he wrote. Um, yeah, he definitely wrote. Killing he, yeah, he wrote Dogtooth, Lobster, and Killing a Sacred Deer. So, you know, I, I think the favorite fits into his sensibilities quite a bit. Um, but it's, it doesn't have exactly his sense of, uh, of uh, his dialogue is sort of missing yeah. from the movie. I don't think the dialogue that that's there is bad or anything. It's, it's excellent, but it's not 
it's not Yorgos Lanthimos dialogue. So you have to kind of know that going in. I would put it probably second after Killing with Sacred Deer. Uh, I want to see the lobster again. That would probably help me solidify my ranking. Um, Dogtooth is such an acquired taste that it's always going to be the lowest, I think, for me. Until I see Alps, I don't know. I haven't heard much about Alps, but that's that's one of those other ones. So I don't know. What what do you think? Did you did it did it eclipse the lobster for you? Oh, I, I probably agree with you, uh, just backwards. I think the lobster, then the favorite, then the killing of a sacred. Fair deer. enough. Um, like I said, this one, it's yeah, definitely. Like I said, his his directing sensibility, you can kind of see here. It's his most, um, I guess, quote unquote, accessible movie. Uh, for regular audiences, because, you know, just imagine trying to take your, you know, your random friend to the movie theater to see The Lobster, and they're going to walk out thinking, you know, what the heck was that? <laughs> you know, totally. so I think this is definitely his most accessible film, but it's still quite, um, you know, odd at times. Um, and I, I, did, yeah. I did think it was interesting, though. I did enjoy it, um, but it's I still think The Lobster eked out, you know, the, the better of the ones I've seen from him. It sounds like the lobster really, really got you. Like that really clicked with you really well. So I bet, yeah, I bet you'll be hard for him to top that for you. You know, like, Indeed. well, we'll see whatever he does next. Yeah. But, so speaking of, you know, the favorite, um, you know, what do you think of the story? You know, how'd, how'd you like the film as a whole? You know, did, did I, work? I, I liked it. You know, it was, it was definitely my big takeaway that I can say without spoilers is that it's a lot more complex than it seemed like, I, I kind of knew going in, because it's Yorgos Lanthimos, that it was going to be more complicated than just the costume drama about two rival women uh, trying to get the attention of the queen, who's sort of a big baby. Um, that's that's pretty much where the movie starts, what you, you may be seen from the trailers. Um, but it, it definitely, it has sort of a reverse structure um, where it peels back layers and becomes ever more complex. So the characters that you think are basically good people aren't and the ones that you think are good are aren't good people are sort of monstrous actually have more going on to them than than you you think when you first see that and i really i appreciated that a lot i thought it, there's some parts of it i don't know if i got really but i definitely liked the characterization and how uh, complex it turned out to be yeah, definitely think we're, we're going to do some digging when we get into the spoiler yep. territory, just kind of discussing everybody's, you know, motivations and kind of what happens in the story. But I mean, just kind of generally speaking, um, yeah, it's it's basically plot wise a story about two different women vying to be the, the queens, um, you know, number two, uh, you know, number, you know, maid or. I'm not exactly sure what the the title would be, you know, just um, they're the queen's right hand man, uh, well, right hand woman. I hate to be sexist, but yeah. So the story, uh, more or less, is told from the point of view of um, Emma Stone. Uh, her character's name is Abigail. Um, Abigail. Um, so she um, comes from. Uh, she used to be a um, a lady of the house. Um, her father lost um, all his money gambling, so she was kind of destitute. And she came here begging her cousin, who was the queen's, you know, right hand lady, for a job, and you know, works her way up from there, you know, quote unquote, and things happen from there. And that's you know, the general outline of what happens. It's very well um, directed, but very specifically directed. Um, I think his, you know, his directing choices were um 
there were some hit or misses, but just you can you can tell. I think we were talking about J.J. Abrams last week. You know, you you know when you're watching this guy's movies because it's very specific. The the language he's speaking when he when he's directing a movie, you really you get the style. Um, oh, excuse me. So, I really think the the visual um, directing kind of did as much for me as the. Um, script, but the script was actually exceptionally well written. Just the dialogue between the ladies, um, it's it's funny, it's entertaining, it's you know snappy. Uh, it's fun just watching them talk to each other. You know, just the uh, you know the clicky teenage girl kind of back and forth. You know, it re- it really worked. You know, it was fun to watch, especially you know during kind of the first half of the movie. I think that kind of you know faded into more um, overarching. You know. Well, the first half is is a little bit more set up, and the second half is darker. Yeah, yeah, the second the f- half is a lot more darker, and it's not as you know quippy. Yeah, this, the first half's more it feels like almost a comedy, although it's it's a fairly racy comedy. Like we were saying earlier, that it's it's an accessible movie for this guy, but kids at home, this is not a partic- don't take your grandma to see this. This is this still it's still pretty raunchy and fucked up. Um, but the second half of the movie goes to a more dark and complex place. Uh, the first half of the movie is a little lighter and a little bit more punchy. Yeah, this was you know still rated R, so mm-hmm. you know you know you know what you're gonna get when you go see it. But um, I don't know. I just it really um, based on the trailers, I wasn't interested at all in seeing it. I thought it would be a different type of movie than what it turned out to be. Uh, just the fact that, you know, the guy that directed the lobster directed this is what made me go see it. Right. Um, because just, I, I thought I was going to see a, you know, a Downton Abbey, you know, whatever, whatever full length feature just based on the trailers. And that's not what it turned out to be at all. And I wonder how audience goers felt about that because you know maybe if you did like Downton Abbey and you saw this and you thought that's what you were going to go see I wonder how you would feel walking out of this movie if you didn't know what you were getting into oh no doubt I was when I was in the theater there wasn't that many people um there but there were a few like elderly couples or and groups of elderly people that were there and I was sort of like and this was a poor assumption on my on my part maybe because nobody walked out but I was sort of like do these people think that they're about to watch like a like a more conventional costume drama like do they yeah. think that this is going to be like downton abbey or something because they're going to walk out once they once the the shit really starts hitting the fan um but you know i was i think i was wrong because nobody <laughs> nobody walked out and there was a lot of laughter from the audience yeah especially like i said especially during that first half it was yep. pretty you know pretty funny you know um what you think about the um, actresses here, uh, Olivia Coleman, Rachel Weiss, and Emma Stone. I think their performances. Um, I don't know. Like I said, if if, if I had um, seen this before our end of uh, end of year podcast, it may have made my top ten because the acting is spectacular. Yep. You know? I don't. I don't know what I would have edged off on my list, but you know, like I said, the the directing. You know, and the the storyline all kind of mold together. I don't know if this would, you know, probably be my my favorite movie of the year, but I mean, acting wise, all three of these did you know excellent jobs in different ways of you know bringing to the screen what the what the script demanded. Yeah, totally agree. This was my first real experience with Olivia Coleman. Uh, so she, you know, her from Broadchurch. Um, yes. A lot of people know her from Broadchurch. She was in the British office, so she's been in a bunch of stuff. But for me, this is my first time really seeing her in anything besides Lobster, where she wasn't... I don't think her role was that big. I don't really remember her in that movie. But she was, she makes a big impression here. 
Um, but I love Rachel Vice, and she usually doesn't get to play uh, a character that has like a dark side. Usually, Rachel Vice's characters are are you know like they're not they're not milk toast or anything, but they they tend to be. She does a lot of dramas, and they're not really about having a, a dark side or not. But this was an interesting her being nasty and being um, conniving was an interesting angle for her. Um, and then Emma Stone, I saw Maniac last year, and before that, I always thought Emma Stone was like, you know, she's pretty, she's dainty, she's very good at being cute and being like, and you know, you can put a lot of like scenery around her. I thought La La Land was about like the perfect role for her and sort of said everything shallow, I think a little bit, but about, about, you know, who she is as an actress, but then maniac came along and she plays a character who's a complete mess. And I didn't know she had that in her. So maniac turned me around on Emma stone, making me realize she has way more range than I thought. So I was kind of ready for her to have the impact that she has in the favorite. And she's incredible in the favorite, you know, that Rachel Weiss is good. And Olivia Coleman is going to be a big surprise for some people, but Emma Stone, I think, walks away with the movie. Mm, interesting. I think probably Olivia Coleman walks away with the movie, in my opinion. Yeah, um, I, I get, I get I think that. Emma Stone, because I feel like Emma's. Um, I don't know. I guess I could just maybe because I'm a maniac and you know Zombieland, and I just I kind of I, I felt like she could do this better, and I feel like physically she fit the role of what you know. I mean, her face did have to work when you just see her, uh, her, her, her nose red and just, you can picture her being one of those type of women and then her, um, the dialogue. I mean, she really just, you know, she, I mean, she does a great job, but I feel like Olivia Coleman was transformed in this movie, just being just what was required of her just, um, to deliver, like I said, we can get, I really, we can get more into it, into spoilers, but just what was required of her was heavier lifting. And like I said, I think, uh, between the three, um, I, I, I think they all did great jobs just in different ways. But I think Olivia Coleman really just um, she walked away with it for me. Nothing against Rachel Weisz. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, she's Rachel Weisz is just like we all kind of like she's an amazing actress. Like uh, like The Constant Gardener is one of my favorite movies of all time. And um, she's uh, she's great. I've loved her forever. The Fountain, like like get out of here, you know, so. Um, but so I knew she could do this and it, it, like, it was nice to see her play different angles than she normally does. Um, but it didn't, it didn't blow me away. And the only reason I think Emma Stone walks away with the movie is because I guess maybe, I don't know, actually, like now, now that I think of it, like Olivia Coleman probably deserves the notes a little bit more just for not being as much of a name, Mm. you know, and she is fantastic. Like, I don't want to diminish her performance at all because it's like the cornerstone of the movie and she has the hardest job maybe because Anne is a very unsympathetic character for pretty much the entire movie and having an actress that can make that make her sympathetic in some ways in spite of that and sell those parts of her uh, background that are that that humanize her um that that's a tough nut to crack I think for anyone and she does pull it off so yeah um, I feel like we're talking around too much, so just kind of before we get into spoilers, what are your overall thoughts? Would you recommend the favorite? Oh, absolutely! Absolutely, it's it's fantastic. Like I said, don't don't take your grandma off. She's the sensitive type who want you know she she'll be ready for a movie where they say the c word a whole lot. Um, but for most adults, this would be a treat. Yeah, and me as well. I agreed. Um, like I said, especially just 
being the director who it is and the sensibility like i said i i would definitely recommend you know what you're getting into before you go right don't just you know oh i like you know i like period dramas i'm gonna go check it out that's not necessarily what this is but as long as you know what you're getting into before you go i think you're definitely gonna you're definitely gonna love this one i really enjoyed it so if you've seen this you know we're gonna get into we're gonna kind of get gotta get into spoilers to really delve deep into what's going on here so from this point forward spoilers for the favorite I apologize for my appearance. I hoped I might be employed here by you as something. A monster for the children to play with, perhaps. All right. So um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, because like this movie could court some controversies. So like we've seen it and people who are listening now have likely seen it. Um, there's there's quite a few like lesbian undertones in this movie. And uh, while the movie is based on some historical events, that stuff might be a little bit of a stretch or a, or a take. Uh, there are definitely queer monarchs in English history. We know that now. But I'm not sure if Queen Anne is one of them. She's one of the... And I'm Canadian, so we kind of still care about the monarchy here. I don't really know much about her. She's not one of the ones that we like like really learn about a lot in, in school. Elizabeth is big and uh, Elizabeth I from like Shakespeare times, she's big. And then uh, Elizabeth II, like our most recent queen, she's she's big too because she's going to live forever. But Anne is one that doesn't get talked about as much. But I expected there to be a controversy. Like when I was watching the movie, I had no idea there was elements like that in it at all. And then I'm watching the movie and I'm thinking, wow, there's been no backlash about this. But there was a backlash about race in the movie because frequently you see people of color uh, basically doing kind of like castle servant lady-in-waiting kind of roles. And I remember seeing uh, about a month ago uh, some articles or comments about how, like, that was ahistorical, like, that that, didn't, that would never happen, that there would be no uh, black people or people from India in the court. And I know from my, like, study of history that that's total bullshit, that, of course, there were people of color in the British court during the colonial period um, for a bunch of different reasons. But I was wondering if, if you had a take on that since there's no way you didn't notice, right? Uh, okay, so that's a two-parter. I'm going to mm-hmm. start with the lesbian stuff um, because I actually, I probably want to push back on you. I didn't think she was a lesbian, I think. Fair um, enough. I was trying to think of a good way to a way to put that that wasn't just saying, like, you know. Yeah. Well, maybe she was, but... Uh, Queer. Let's just, let's go with that. Yeah, yeah. So I think the... I guess kind of hard to explain, but just the portrayal I got from the movie is that... You know, she had had, what, 17 miscarriages or lost babies overall. And she was just kind of men weren't even, you know, on the plate at that point. It was just she was just trying to survive, trying to make it. And just the relationship that she had with Rachel Weisz. Uh, you know, I guess over time, you know, she had needs and, you know, it's kind of one of those things where it just kind of happens over time. And then that's just kind of part of their relationship to where, uh, you know, they they became lovers and it wasn't necessarily a I'm a lesbian now kind of thing. But it's kind of one of those we don't label it kind of things. It's just it's kind of one of those things that just kind of happened. Yeah, they didn't have a concept of lesbians at the time. Um, what I was getting at was like I expected that to be a controversy. Like some people would be like. Queen Anne wasn't wasn't queer. She wasn't gay. Like, what the fuck are you doing? I expected people to get mad about that, but they didn't, right? Um, and definitely, like, like lesbian is a bit of a label that wouldn't really fit. You're right because lesbian is sort of like a limiting label. Like, it means you only prefer women if you're a woman. 
Queer is probably better because it, it can be a little bit more flexible. And I think you're right that she's sort of flexible. But I did. Did you get the feeling that they had had an affair going on for probably a long time, maybe since childhood? Because I kind of got that feeling that that this this like closeness, mm. whether it was sexual or not, all the time was probably a thing cause, since because they knew each other since they were kids, you know. Yeah. And it's not that yeah, they weren't I, into their husbands. It was more like they they may have always had this kind of touch and go on the side, you know. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, I think that that does make sense. Just because I mean, when you're the queen, your options are kind of limited. Unless you, sure. you know, what? Well, I, I guess you could, you know, theoretically have guys on the side. And nobody just speaks about it because you're the queen. But if you're trying to keep it secretive, you know, your options are really kind of limited. And I think, you know, maybe just over time, like I said, they just had one of those relationships where you know they grew intimate over time and she just you know became that you know for her you know so but um to your second part um the um the race issue i honestly i didn't uh, i didn't think about it one way or the other i didn't even see it because i don't when i'm looking at a period piece like this i just don't expect to see black faces you know uh, right. to be honest with you it's um, and something fantastical like Lord of the Rings, when everything is all white, then it kind of stands out a little bit more. But in this, um, you know, 18th century England, I don't I'm not expecting to see black dukes and royals just because we need black actors. I just I'm, I understand that I'm watching an English period piece. So um, it kind of like I said, it, did, it didn't it didn't stand out to me. It didn't bother me, that kind of thing here so much. I didn't see, any, you know backlash i you know I, I wasn't checking for him you know the backlash article so um so like i say did i didn't really think about that too much here watching this one i just i was more interested in just kind of the story as to what was going on i get that i i, I guess i pointed it out because i like i would like you know i i know a little bit about history not a lot i'm not an expert but uh there is like the reason why you don't expect to see black faces or brown faces in an English period drama in the 18th century is because typically those period dramas are whitewashed. So there are, there are, they, they wouldn't be like, and that's a movie thing. So movies that take place in that period typically don't have black and brown people, but that's a historical that like, historically speaking, there were tons of black and brown people in Europe for thousand, like for over a thousand years, like since there was a Europe essentially, right? Like since, yeah. since all of medieval, all, all the medieval period, one of the oldest tapestries they have of a medieval battle, like prominently features a knight riding into battle with a black face. Like he's black skinned and he's probably Moorish, right? Um, mm -hmm. There was lots of travel, lots of, uh, of, of, uh, especially in the colonial period, they like, there was lots of like, you know, like England had occupied India sort of at the time. So there's one kid who throws the birds out to be shot. He's Indian, you know, um, that fits right. Like, but there's people, there were people kind of complaining about that. Like it was a social justice warrior agenda, like, you know, race bending history or something. Like there was some takes like that that were coming out when the movie came out as it started to get, pick up steam, you know, in terms of being like a movie that was getting a lot of critical attention. Uh, and I noticed, I heard a lot of that and I was like, that's, that's bullshit. Like those, those people would totally have been there. It's, it's like, it's, it's actually movies that have convinced us that they wouldn't be. Yeah, so that's probably a me thing, you know, it's just, I've been uh, programmed to think of 18th century England and just think of all white faces, you know, even today, if I turn to the British warrior family, it was a big thing because of Meghan Markle. So I just don't 
think of color, you know, colored people. I just, in my head, that's just kind of an all white thing. So I guess maybe I have been programmed and that's something I, I need to, you know, focus more on. Oh, and probably dude, you're the, not alone. You know, this, I was saying probably the social justice warrior type people that you were talking about, they did the research and they know. So they're the ones writing the article because they want people like me to know better. You know. Well, so there's this cool that. blog uh, that I came across a while back um, called blackpast.org. And it's all about um, particularly African descended people showing up in different places in history where you where we wouldn't expect to find them, mostly because of pop culture and media. And it's like you know they have an article about that that uh, tapestry I was talking about. There was like I I, I something I can't remember exactly, but there was some kind of community of uh, of black Christians that was like there there was like a town. And it was like a black town and it was in Southern England or something. And they recently found the remains of the people that live there and, oh, they're black. Like what the hell, you know, like, and it kind of like was one of those big things. It was a big story for a little while, something like that. I wish I could remember it better, but this, this blog essentially collects stories like that and tries to sort of undo some of that whitewashing of European history where, where we expect to just see white faces. But I mean, Shakespeare wrote Othello in the 16th century and a fellow is a moor he's black that's why you know Lawrence Fishburne played him in the movie right yeah and there's no themes in that play about like because they didn't have a conception of like uh, like at least at that period before slavery they didn't have a conception of like people with black skin as being less like less than right it wasn't until slavery that that became vogue to think that people with black skin from Africa were somehow like subhuman or whatever right but, like, uh, in that period, Othello, like, his othering has to do with the fact that he's not from the kingdom where he's becoming, uh, like, where he's in the nobility. Have you ever read Othello or seen a movie of it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've read it, um, seen a play, I believe, and then I nice. watched O. You know, the o oh, O is good. That's an underrated movie. Yeah. Oh, Othello is my favorite Shakespeare play. Um, so like, I, I just think it says something about, about this whitewashing of history that, that even Shakespeare was writing a character who was black and there was no, like the, the, his blackness isn't really a feature of the story. It's not that important. The only person who ever throws shade about it is Iago because Iago's an asshole, <laughs> right? <laughs> one of the great, one of the great Shakespeare villains, Iago, but still a, an asshole. But yeah, anyway, I just, I, I, you know, I just thought you might've heard about that backlash and I wondered what you'd think about it as a black man, you know, like uh, seeing that in a movie is, is I, I recognize that that's very uncommon for a period piece in England to have black and brown faces. Um, but it's not, it's not erroneous. Uh, and I, and I, the backlash focuses on it like it is, like it's somehow like historically wrong or incorrect, but that's the opposite of the truth. So I thought that that would be something like worth mentioning about the movie. Although I don't know that it's that huge of a part of its critical reception. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't seen that, but now that you've said something, probably dig more into it. Um, but I mean, just, you know, in general, um, what, what else kind of, what are your nitpicks about it? What didn't you like about the movie what, in general? Yeah. Yeah. In, in general, what kind of bothered you about it? Oh man, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know if we've really, if we've really like used that question as a way to talk about it 
a movie, but I think I think you're just trying to trick me into into being negative. <laughs> but uh, well, no, no, let me let me. I'll start it off actually because right. what made me think about that is the camera work. That was oh. that really detracted from me watching this movie. Just the 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 fisheye lens right. and that kind of stuff. It really took me out of the movie watching that kind of stuff. So that's one of the directing choices that kind of it pulled me out of what I was watching and made me realize I was watching a movie. Especially that first time they do the um, kind of the tracking shot of the the, the horse and buggy going across with the fisheye right. lens, it it just really it looked really weird. I understand it was a directorial choice. Maybe he was trying to say something about it, but it, it really just took me out of the movie. And that's one of the things I really didn't like about it. Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking like like that too. Like like I noticed it right, of course. And and typically I don't I don't like that kind of thing unless I can tell why it's there. And I was asking. Um, my friend Mackenzie, who was with us when we went to see the movie, I was like, what did you think of that? And she said, you know, uh, the reason why he did it was because um, I guess she'd read an interview or something. And she was like, Yorgos Lanthimos did that because uh, it's got something to do with these mirrors, these convex mirrors that like mm-hmm. would reflect a room uh, in a kind of warped way. But, you know, and, and that sounded like reasonable and, and kind of like a cool technique to use. But then you realize, like you're saying, that he uses it a lot in outdoor shots. So maybe it would have made more sense to just do it for indoor stuff and not outdoor stuff. I don't know. Yeah, I can't speak to it. I, I definitely feel like it was a directorial choice, mm-hmm. and it really just, you know, it, it didn't work for me. But anything else? Because that's really kind of my, my biggest nit, you know, um, I, I don't, overall. I guess I don't really have any 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 nits to pick. I, I didn't, I think that I didn't really, I want to know what the fucking last, like, minute of that movie is about. Like, Let's see. Now, that that's when I felt the most attached to the movie that's when i felt the your girl slant the most <laughs> coming through yeah I, I, like that was 100 percent him i didn't understand it but i knew it was supposed to <laughs> yeah. mean something that kind of thing you know yeah i get that i just wish i knew what it meant like like particularly what i'm talking about is like so when they're when they're sort of like um when she's the queen is like rub my legs right i was like oh that's code for for like some like for like a handy basically right um <laughs> you know like yeah. that's what i was thinking every time she said it but um at the end there's like this really long uncomfortable scene where that's happening and then it cuts to like a field of rabbits and i mean rabbits are like a motif in the movie i know that like like textually they stand in for her uh lost children but there's a subtext in that last scene with the rabbits uh there's a subtext i think going on the whole movie with the rabbits that that only really shows itself as subtext in that last shot. And I wish I understood what it meant. We actually stood in the theater. There were four of us, my wife and I, and our, our friends, Mackenzie and Brian. We'd gone to see it together. And they, you know, we all talked about that last shot for probably like 10 minutes. Because we were all trying to figure out what it meant. And and I don't know. What did, what did you think it meant? I just, uh, the... The scene itself, I just thought it was kind of a, you know, uh, her establishing dominance, mm-hmm. you know, trying to say, yeah, I mean, I'm frail. You're, you're kind of, you know, I understand you're doing, you're running the show, but I want you to understand I, I'm still the queen and, you know, I can still, you know, show you that I know who I am kind of thing. And, but the, the rabbits and whatnot, I don't know. I think that was just some kind of an artistic thing that was, you know, people smarter than me are going to write essays about explaining exactly what it meant. But, you know, yeah. I think they're pulling it out of their butt too. So it just, well, it McKen- just Mackenzie said something like what you said, we should get her on the podcast. She was like, she was like, it's about power. She's like, uh, she's just showing that she's still in charge. She's, uh, yeah. 
like Abigail sort of at this point of the movie become the very thing that she sort of hated at the beginning. She's like this, like we think at the, like one of the cool things I was talking about earlier in the movie that I couldn't spoil. That's a reversal is at first you're like, wow, you know, Rachel Weiss's character is a conniving evil opportunist who's like taking advantage of the queen. And it turns out as the movie goes on, that's not really true. There's like a real relationship there. There's real concern. There's real love. And with Abigail, though, she goes from being more or less well-meaning and trying to just make her way in the world to becoming more and more conniving, opportunistic, and, like, corrupt. And at the end of the movie, she's super, she's so corrupt that she's stepping on the rabbits, which might be what the rabbits really mean. And then, you know, the queen just puts her in her place, essentially. That's sort of what Mackenzie was saying, too. And, like, uh, yeah, I kind of agree with that. I wish I understood where the rabbits feature into that, but I do think that that last really long rubbing the legs scene, whether that's a euphemism or not, uh, I think that is definitely about Anne. I think that's 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 true, that, that it's about Anne showing who's boss. I think, I mean, to pivot a little bit, I think we kind of read their uh, personalities kind of differently. So let me kind of oh. explain what I thought of the... Uh, Emma Stone character. Okay. I think she was, you know, a conniving uh, so-and-so from day one. I think she, I mean, the plan from the beginning was always to scrape her way to the top no matter what it took. Um, I just, I mean, from, I think at the very, very beginning, she was just kind of testing the waters and, uh, you know, getting her feet wet, kind of understanding the place. But I think from day one, she was always planning on, you know, scraping up no matter what it took. Uh, I I really enjoyed the ride. And I think she was way more um, um, heartless or, you know, cold hearted or, you know, conniving than Rachel Weiss's character was. And I think because I think Rachel Weiss actually cared about the country and she was thinking about military plans and politics and whatnot. And uh, Emma Stone's character was really just, you know, I'm, I, I used to be a lady and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get back to lady status. Um, so I think Rachel Weiss's character, she was playing chess in a very layered game. Um, but I mean, Emma Stone, I mean, checkers is a simpler game, man. You got the double, triple jumps, you know what I mean? You're going you're gonna to take advantage of it. And she did what, what needed doing. I thought, um, you know, the very beginning, I think they played her more sympathetically, just, you know, with the other people, the other housemates playing tricks on her and whatnot. They made her seem like a more sympathetic character. But the, as more time went on, you could tell she had a dark side and she was going to do whatever it took. And it was fun watching. Um, I guess I, I kind of believed her when she was talking about like, cause she would, there were scenes where she was like, she would flat out say, if I want to survive, I have to, I have to be like wicked. I have to do things that are at the edge of my moral conscience. Right. So I, I, I guess I kind of bought, I took that at face value more than, okay. well, let me, you know, I think the, um, the difference was the, um, after she found, she found out about them being lovers, the, the gunshot scene, that's what flipped the switch. So from that point forward, she was willing to be Rachel Weiss's right hand confidant. She was going to be the right hand to the right hand. She let, you know, she didn't have to tell her she knew about the lesbian stuff. She laid her cards out flat. And if Rachel Weiss would have been like, okay, you laid everything out. I trust you. Then they were just going to trust each other. And she was right. going to be 100% her most faithful person. But the fact that Rachel wife basically spit in her face and threatened her, she's like, okay, well, all I have is me. So at this point I'm going to, you know, I may have to do things I don't want to do, but all I got is me. So I'm going to yeah. do what it needs doing. 
And I think you make an interesting point about about how her motives, even when she pl- tries to play politics, there's a couple po- points where she like tries to comment on like you know her whole thing where oh it's like a party talking about troop movements. Um, she's still only out for herself. Where where yeah, there is an argument to be made that Rachel Vice's character, um, who's a who's an ancestor of Winston Churchill, if you didn't know that, um, in in history. Uh, the lady, lady, uh, her her last name was Churchill, but the lady of Marlborough. She's like Winston Churchill and Princess Diana's like direct ancestor. Anyway, I did not. Yeah, know yeah, I found that out after I saw the movie. She, um, her whole thing about the military situation with uh, the war with France. You know, I, I guess I just didn't trust it. I felt like she was just looking mm-hmm. for power and influence for herself. I didn't buy that she really cared about the country. But thinking back on it now the contrast of like her actually trying to run England while Abigail is just trying to better her own situation that I think that a second viewing, I think I'd probably end up siding with you on that. Now right. that I think, I think back. they were both, I think they were both flawed. Well, I think of course, Rachel yeah. Weiss's problem is she kind of overstepped her bounds and she thought she was the queen. So she thought she was doing what's best for the country as the queen. That's right. not necessarily listening to what the, you know, giving the queen the best advice and deciding what she thought. She, you know, she had, she picked her team, she had her favorites and she was, you know, she was trying to run things and that's where, you know, her flaw came in. That was what ended up being her ruin because she pushed too far know, kind uh, of, right? Yeah. Like, and then, and Emma Stone, like I said, she saw an opening and she, she dove in that gap and, you know, she did what needed doing. She was kind of heartless about it, but yeah. she had an opportunity. And since Rachel Weiss overstepped her bounds and slipped up, she had a, a, a moment to strike, and she struck. Yeah, I think um, I, I think that's a good read. Like, like to me, I was thinking, like, as you were just saying that, that um, Emma Stone's kind of thing. Like, oh, I lost my train of thought. Well, let me okay. Let me let me pivot for a second. Let me ask you about this. Uh, what do you think about the nudity? Because that, that's something that kind of caught me off guard. Because Emma Stone, um, she was, you know, she's a big name she's been in she's a huge movie star at this point you know and i think i'm trying to decide if that's something that is old outdated hollywood to where you have to you know you have to be nude in movies to get your star you know or if now at this point you know we have actually gotten to a point where we're more european where it's no big deal well no no i think it's interesting because like for for one thing like uh, Europe has like their attitude about nudity and violence in reverse from Americans, where violence is okay. You can have a guy get his head cut off, you can see everything, but tits are not okay. Canada is in the middle. So like for you guys, some of your rated R stuff is PG-14 here, um, which as a teacher, like sometimes you have to explain like to kids and parents, no, no, this movie's PG-14. It's not rated R. That's just the American rating, right? Um, because you guys rate... Uh, sexuality more strictly than we do uh just slightly right so in this movie and in general i think it's really about how it's used i didn't think that uh emma stone being nude which surprised me too was gratuitous it was like it was a scene where, where it's humiliating um in a certain sense because she's getting caught but it's also strategic because she is showing she's she's making sure that she's almost like flashing Rachel Vice, being like, this is why she wants me, you know? And like other actresses, uh, even at the heart of controversies about nudity, like Jennifer Lawrence, 
they've chosen to to go nude in movies where it where it was like uh relevant and i like red sparrow she's like full frontal nude in that movie which i never thought she would do after the fappening photo leak bullshit that happened to her uh i never thought she would do nudity in her whole career but she does it in red sparrow in a way that serves the movie that she's in because the movie has psychosexual themes it's all about like the psychology of sex and stuff um so i think it fits here i think it works here and i don't know though that it means that america has gotten over like being kind of i don't know like yeah. hand wringing about nudity i feel like though once upon a time being nude in like a gratuitous nude scene like in a horror movie was sort of a rite of passage for actresses i don't think we're there anymore i do think we've moved past that thankfully but um when an actress ends up in a like a big name actress like jennifer lawrence or emma stone or even i don't know if you've seen it but uh scarlett johansson was nude and under the skin yeah definitely in the context of this movie it was more like a uh a power move because uh, she was facing the door she knew which way rachel weiss right. was going to come in you know she was you know had her had her breast out like hey when you walk in you're going to see it you know? <laughs> yeah so you you know this isn't like because you know um she could have been fully dressed and it could have been you know maybe just like a comfort thing or you know maybe we just you know we were talking and fell asleep that kind of thing but you know with, with her breast out she's gonna know you you know why i'm here you know what just happened you know that i'm taking you know your place you know kind of thing it's a power move yeah oh i think it i think there's gonna be tons of people talking about this because it's almost like there, there's there's an old like i don't think you're coming from this place but there, but like we're commenting on the fact that this does come up in our culture and our, it comes up in our culture because there's like a fixation on women's bodies and what they do with them and stuff so i don't know i don't know what that means for like where our cultural position is in terms of nudity if we're becoming more european or not that's an interesting question yeah, just figured I'd throw that out there. Uh, while we're, you know, um, on the subject of kind of that, that scene, it brings me to Olivia Coleman. I mean, her, um, I think her, her, what was asked of her is very complex in this movie because she had to be kind of, I don't know, ditzy, or I guess that's kind of how I use it. She's kind of aloof and kind of silly at first. And you think, oh, she's just a, you know, she's a child queen. You know, she's right. just some random you know this is what happens when you, you marry your cousins your cousins your cousin you get some child on the throne that has to be managed but the further along the movie goes you know she's somebody that's been through the shit yeah. <laughs> you know she's been through some stuff you know she's lost uh i, I can't remember is it 13 or 17, 17. kids 17. 17 17 kids and how do you you know she said she said it herself you know you lose a piece of yourself every time one dies and yeah. you know how do you make it through what do you look like as a person when you've lost 17 kids and you know maybe that's what what she ended up being and so just the what, what was asked of olivia coleman i think she played that very well and then later on in the movie after i guess she had a stroke to where you know the left side of her body was you know all but useless i think she you know really played that well and she didn't seem you know, useless, you know, I feel like a lot of people, especially, you know, um, if you were spoiled or, you know, what have you, you're used to a certain lifestyle throughout your life, something like that happens, you know, you just kind of check out. But I feel like she was more um, in charge of her faculties and whatnot after the stroke than she was before. You know, she was yeah. more active and more, you know, involved in politics and whatnot. And 
while Emma Stone was just kind of, you know, she got what she wanted. So she just became, you know, just another member of you know, high society. Right. I, yeah. And I agree that she seems to be more in charge of herself. And I mean, she's still trying, she's trying to read the paper. She's trying to be involved when she's uh, post stroke. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like, I, I think what was interesting about her character too, is that to me, she was playing like a very extreme case of, of hardcore depression. Like right from almost the beginning, I was like, this is like, I've seen depression up close and personal enough to know what it looks like. And to me, what her, her whole, the whole, like, it feels like Olivia Coleman, either on her own or with Yorgos or with the writers, decided to play the character as somebody who was, like, manic depressive and, like, super, mm-hmm. super, super just depressed. And, like, to, to an extreme that you wouldn't normally see in somebody that was, like, you could describe as having depression, but in a way that was familiar uh, to me. Like, just her, her self-destructive characteristics, her um, lack of... Uh, of, of self-esteem and or being willing to try things um just her her quit her, her, her the, the, the speed with which she kind of like gave up on a situation that was uncomfortable or painful those all felt like very like of course it's rooted in her trauma so the trauma gives rise to the depression that that characterizes that behavior but that's that's what again i felt sorry for her like the whole time i was watching the movie like it was even though i thought she was kind of like like a child queen in a lot of ways especially in the early part of the movie I was like, I felt bad for her the whole time. Yeah. I feel like her acting and just the the way the story was doled out and told to you over time and really made you not only change how, you're, how you viewed her and your perspective, but made you feel bad about how you viewed her earlier. Yeah. Because you know? it's not that she's just some, you know, silly lady. It's that she's holding on to whatever pieces she has left and is doing her best to run a whole country as well as you know be happy and deal with the loss of so many children and being you know alone so which is interesting kind of respect her yeah and it's interesting when you think about like rachel vice's character uh um and abigail uh, rachel vice's character's name i can't remember it's lady marlboro she um or sarah sorry so sarah and abigail so sarah and her like do you think my thing was like Sarah's mistake. We were talking about their flaws earlier. And I think Sarah's mistake with Anne is that she's always cutting her down. She's always limiting her. Like she won't let Anne grow beyond what Anne has been historically capable of doing up to that point. So she's always like, you can't handle it. You can't do this. Where Abigail at least temporarily brings her up. And that's sort of like Abigail's saving grace with Anne is that even though she's just using the queen, even though she's just trying to get her way uh, in the world, She's also still making Anne temporarily at least feel good about herself and feel like she can handle things. Did you get that from it? Yeah, I mean that's what that was kind of really uh, thought was something that was kind of one of the darker parts of the movie is that Emma Stone's kind of um, corrupt motivations are what led Olivia Coleman to being more you know um, involved or you know more brought her a little bit back more to life. Whether because, you know, she knew she was being played and she knew she still had a country to run and et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's sad that it took Emma Stone being the conniving little whatever, whatever to bring that out of her because Rachel Weiss's character, she never could have grown, even though Rachel Weiss may have cared about her as a person and she may have actually had love for her, et cetera, et cetera, just because of Rachel, the way 
Rachel Weisz chose to show her love and chose to kind of dismiss her as, you know, checked out or whatever, she probably never would have grown to be anything other than what she was when Rachel Weisz was around. Yeah, I think that's really, uh, really well said. Um, like, I, I totally agree with that take. Like, especially the part about um, even though she's got love for her, she's still, you know, and, and like what you said about the, the how dark it is that even the act of uplifting Anne is just a, just another kind of manipulation. Like, that's that's the complexity I was talking about earlier. Like, the, the movie just kind of doesn't let you rest on any particular archetypal idea of the characters or any kind of simplistic read of their motivations or who they are. It's constantly kind of turning it over a little bit and making you rethink, you know? Yeah, it's kind of uh, one of those things where you could understand how this movie is wouldn't make anybody's top ten, and then you could understand how it would be somebody's number one, just because the more you talk about it, the more layers you feel, kind of, you know, how how deep and well well scripted and well directed it was, so... But yeah, uh, I think we pretty much covered all the bases. So just kind of yep. overall, you know, once again, what'd you think of the favorite? Would you recommend it? Uh, you know, spoilers abound. What'd you think? Yeah, I uh, still really recommend it. Think that people should see it. it. Like if you're the like Sterling saying, if you're the kind of person who you know is ready for it, it's going to be a treat, and you're going to really like it. It might end up being one of your favorite movies of 2018, even though it's 2019 now. But if you're you know like it could easily go the other way too. So just make sure that when you're going into it that you know that it's a bit off kilter and it's not your average costume drama. Uh, it's a pretty exciting movie, though, and if you can connect with the material and especially with the performances, which are there to kind of draw you in anyway, it'll really kind of give you a complex, kind of like a three-part character study to look at. Most character studies focus on one character, but this is like a th- like you get three for one in this one. Indeed. And as I said before, um, I recommend it. As long as you know what you're getting into, um, like I said, the more I talk about it, the more I appreciate what it was, not only just directorially, but script wise, acting wise, everything that's, you know, all wrapped up into this movie. I definitely recommend. Uh, so if you haven't seen it, for some reason you listen to all of this, shame on you and go see it. And if you have seen it, um, let us know what you think. Um, as I said, you can email us at seriousmovies at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group, Serious Movies. Follow us on Twitter, Serious Movies, all of the above. Uh, what, uh, Ethan, specifically, where can people find about uh, what you do on the internet? Uh, yeah, you can find me at uh, on WordPress. Uh, I have a blog, and I've been reviewing movies again lately. Um, so you can find that at thunderclam.wordpress.com. That's thunderclam, as in the, the shellfish. Uh, wordpress.com and you can get me at at Evan Todd McCoy all one word on Twitter indeed you can find me at Sir Waka on Twitter and um, find obviously the website S-I-R-R-W-A-K-A SirWaka.com uh, next week, you guys can listen in. We'll be reviewing Glass, uh, M. Night Shyamalan's newest flick. So that's pretty much it. Uh, thank you guys for listening and see you next week. See ya.